Isaiah chapter 30 is our text. And what I want to do, I just want to let you know right up front, maybe a little bit differently. Um, I want to look at chapter 30 under three headings, um, which we'll, we'll get to and you'll be able to, to, to follow along. Uh, the strategies of idolaters, the salvation of God, and the suffering of Assyria. The strategies of idolaters, the salvation of God, the suffering of Assyria. And if we were to take a, just a, a bird's eye view, just take a took a step back and look at this chapter. The, the, this chapter 30 really is a message that speaks to all of us about our sinful condition and our only hope. Our sinful condition, our only hope. And if we reject that only hope, the eternal destruction. We all once were or are idolaters. We all need salvation that's been provided to us by Christ and the gospel. And whoever rejects God's love and kindness is choosing to suffer the consequences of the eternal separation from God. That's what this chapter is all about. So if you have your Bibles, open it to chapter 30, and we'll look at that together. Just give you a, a, a quick context of, the, of where we are, just to kind of run uh, uh, running into the text. Uh, Isaiah has, you know, been, been preaching and proclaiming to God's people to humble themselves, that they are to turn and repent of their covenant-breaking sins, of fear, of abusive leadership, oppression to the poor, uh, just really a failure to trust the Lord covenant God. But even while their hearts were hard, God has been faithful to his people. We've seen that in the midst of sin and rebellion uh, and their, their faithlessness. God has been faithful. He continues to remind his people about his love and his grace and his promise of redemption. That God will someday grab and hold of this remnant of people whose sins will be washed away. Whose salvation, whose salvation will be given to them and for all nations of all tongues of all tribes. God will establish an eternal kingdom, we learn in Isaiah. The promise that he made to King David that a son will be born. He will sit on an eternal throne with justice and righteousness. And we know his name is Jesus. That's why the gospel according to Isaiah is a very appropriate title for our message. Jesus is all over Isaiah. We've been saying, and if you remember, keep put this before you, that the 12 tribes of Israel that are in the promised land have split into two kingdoms after Solomon, King Solomon died. Ten kingdoms, excuse me, ten tribes to the north called Israel, known as Ephraim. They are to the north. Their capital city, I told you I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, their capital is Samaria. That's Israel's capital is Samaria. They are being destroyed by the Assyrian army. God told Israel, Ephraim, the northern ten tribes, what he was going to do. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, including Isaiah, Elijah, Amos, uh, Hosea. He said to them, repent of your sin or be disciplined by my hand. They chose discipline instead of grace. And that's what he did. In 721 B.C., the Assyrian army, you see Syria there, conquered and destroyed the capital of Samaria. They came west-north, west-south, and destroyed the capital city of Samaria and took over and destroyed Israel. Now, if you remember, before the destruction, 721 B.C., of Israel by the Assyrians, Israel made a pact with 
Syria, S-Y-R-I-A, right above Israel. They said, let's, let's join together and maybe we could stop this Assyrian attack on us. And we, you know, we just join together. Let's get Judah to join us as well. Ahaz was the king. And Ahaz, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem is their capital. They're on the, uh, uh, two tribes to the south. Ahaz said, nah, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm not joining Israel and Syria to fight off Assyria. I think what I'll do is I'll make a pact, an alliance with Assyria. So Judah makes an alliance with Assyria, but that didn't work out very well, as we know. God, in his sovereignty, sent the Assyrian nation to discipline his people. As I said, 721 B.C., the Assyrians march into Syria and Israel, destroying Israel, capturing Samaria, and now they are approaching Judah itself. As we said last week, they will attack Judah at 701 B.C. Obviously, Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, pact, alliance didn't work very well. So as the Assyrian nation marches into Jerusalem, it's around 701 B.C., The new king of Judah, it's not Ahaz anymore, it's a man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the Bible tells us, is a good king. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is not only a good king, he did what the Bible says, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you read 2 Kings 16 through 20, Isaiah 36 through 39, you will see Hezekiah tore down these altars, these removing pagan altars throughout Jerusalem and returned worship to the living God. Hezekiah was a a reformer. 2 Kings 18 says that Hezekiah, king of Judah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He was the best. He held a fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following God, but kept the commandments of the Lord that Moses commanded. And the Lord was with him. That's 2 Kings 18. Whatever he went out, wherever he went out, that's Hezekiah, he prospered. He, Hezekiah, now listen, rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Ahaz before him made an alliance with Assyria. Hezekiah now bringing revival says, I'm not bowing down to Assyria. See what's happening. We learned last week, though, in chapter 29, verse 13, that God said that although Hezekiah is doing this reformation going on in in Jerusalem, chapter 29, verse 13, God says, the people drew near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Everything external. We talked about that last week. And their fear of me is not about who I am, but is a commandment taught by men. Chapter 29, verse 13. So, Hezekiah is a good king. But Hezekiah is not a perfect king. All the kings of Israel, whether they're good or bad, point to the one who is the perfect king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, the coming of the king. His name is Jesus the Christ. He is the only perfect king. In fact, Hezekiah has got this reform, reformation going on, this, this renewal going on, but then Hezekiah makes an alliance, like Ahaz did with Assyria. This time, Hezekiah makes an alliance with Egypt for help. You see, right below them. 
So Hezekiah is going to run to Egypt for help. And that's really the context of our text. So turn to me with me to chapter 30th. Hezekiah, not trusting the Lord, makes an alliance with Egypt, seeking the protection and refuge from a pagan nation rather than trust the Lord as Assyria is coming on the doorstep of Judah. He doesn't trust God. He makes an allegiance. So let me read to you first the strategies of idolaters, reading verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 17. I think it's the longest section, but let me read God's word to you this morning. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Ah, or woe, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not by my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are in Zoan and his envoys reach Hanus, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and the treasures on their humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called a Rahab who sits still. And now, go. Write it before them on a tablet and ascribe it in a book that they may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise the word and trust in opposition and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you. Like a breach in a high wall, bulging out, about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or dip up the water out of the cistern. Thus, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, verse 15. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you are unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away and will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at one threat, a threat of one. And a threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Really, we could sum up that section in one word. Idolatry. Look with me in verse one. It says the word alliance. Interesting word in the Hebrew. In chapter 28, verse 20, same Hebrew word is used, and they translate it covering. 
If you remember from chapter 28, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Same word, alliance. In chapter 30, the chapter we're looking at, verse 22, same word is used. And this one is translated metal images, meaning uh, images of idolatry. It was also a word used for a libation offering. That was something that was poured out on an offering. It was used as a part of a ceremony involving a covenant being made between two nations. So the conclusion of this word we see in chapter 1 is that Judah was entering into a covenant with Egypt in hopes that Egypt would cover them like a warm blanket. They were, they were looking for, for the safety. They were looking for comfort. They were looking to be covered but they were looking in all the wrong places. And looking in all the wrong places is what the Bible calls idolatry. And as Judah faced the situation before them, the Assyrians are on their front door. Rather than repent of their rebellion, as I said, they put their trust in Egypt. Rather than run to God, they're running away from God. Like stubborn children, the Bible says. That's covenant language. They reach deep within themselves. They don't want to reach out and look to God. They reach in within themselves to find their salvation. They would rather follow their own plans. They would rather follow their own uh, purposes than the plans and purposes of God. Trusting in their own resources. Not the provision of God. Who wants to save. Who wants to rescue. Who desires to deliver them. But God's not blessing someone else's plans. He blesses only that which is of himself. We talk about idolatry here because it's a problem for all of us. Let me give you a couple of quotes uh, to put your, wrap your head around what is idolatry. Richard Keyes says, an, an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God. Okay, An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as God. All sorts of things, he says, are potential idols, depending on our attitude and our actions toward them. He says, idolatry may not involve explicit denial of God's existence or his character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. Let me, let me say that again. It may come in the form, idols... Idolatry, it may come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. It could be physical object, property, a person, activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure. He said it's a hero. Anything can substitute for God. For God, yeah. Ken Sandy wrote this. An idol is not simply a statue of wood or stone or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God and can be referred to as a false God or a functional God. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on. That's where the function comes in. We're setting our hearts on it that motivates us and masters us or rules us or that we serve. Getting your mind around idolatry? Not just not just the wooden thing we put up on a... On a on a thing that they worship back in that day. Of course, we can't leave this without quoting Tim Keller. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I feel my life 
has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. If I have that, then I'll feel significant and secure. He says, anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity is an idol, end quote. The stubborn children of Israel, of Judah were looking to Egypt for their salvation, for their protection, for their comfort. Family, what are you hoping in today? What is your ultimate hope in? What are, what are, you, what are you trusting in when all the dust settles and the quietness of your souls? What are you trusting in? What are you looking for for your justification, for your wholeness, for your significance, for your comfort? Are you making alliances with created things rather than the creator Are you making alliance with with things that cannot last, that will not last, that are not of his spirit, that are of your own mind and your own thoughts? If it is, it won't last. In the end, it will bring you only shame and humiliation. It won't profit you anything. Verses 3 and 4. Idols will never truly cover your shame. Why? Because idols will never protect you from the reality of God's Eyes, his seeing the deep thoughts and intents of our hearts. We know we are bare before our creator. No creature, Hebrews tells us, is hidden from God's sight. But in God's sight, we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. Listen, listen, deep down in our hearts, the place where we think, If you really knew me, if you really understood, if you really saw my heart, I wouldn't be received, I would be rejected. It is that fear of that rejection, uh, uh, the fear of not being loved and accepted that drives us to idolatry. Looking for something or someone to place our hope in. A place where our shame will be dissolved. A place where we will be unconditionally loved no matter what's been revealed. But the truth is, listen, the truth is, if God is not the one who protects me and covers me, covers my guilt and my sin, I have no covering at all. His ways, my ways, no, his way, not my plans. Therefore, we cannot add, we cannot obscure the finished work of Christ on the cross by trying to justify and save ourselves. If Jesus, now listen, if Jesus can't pay... Jesus did not come and pay for my shame and my guilt. I'm done. I'm done. If the Holy Spirit isn't enough to show me the beauty and the all-satisfying worth of Christ, then I'm empty. I must not fill myself with wood, plastic, or any other, anything else. All I need is the purposes of God. All I need is the plan and salvation of God. And my shame will be washed away. Isaiah is trying to teach that to us this morning. In verses 6 and 7, Isaiah pictures God's people loading up their riches, the price they will pay as they head into trouble, into anguish, into Egypt, carrying out their idol strategy. That's what verses 6 and 7, seeking shelter and protection from their idols. But God says it won't profit them. No matter how much money, no no matter how much money, no, no matter how much energy we throw at our idols, it will be worthless and empty. No matter how much, we're, we're, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, God created us worshipers. 
and we throw money and we throw things and when it's not worship and directed toward God, we come up empty. He calls them Egypt. Look what he says. Rahab means turbulence, boastfulness, not a flattering term, right? That's not what, that, that's not what he's saying. Not a flattering term. In fact, Motier, the commentary says, perhaps big mouth would catch Isaiah's sense or, or do nothing. So God tells Isaiah in verse 6, look, write this down. You see it? Write it down. Be a witness against them. Write this as the imperishable word of God. Okay? Write it down. It's a witness. It's a testimony against them forever. Write it down. And, and I think I think the purpose is not only is a witness against them that day, but I think it's a witness for us today. That God says what he says, does what he does, and fulfills his promises and his plans. That's for us today as well. That's for us today as well. But now, they're going to continue in their idolatry. Their, their strategies, verse 9 says, they're rebel, rebels. Verse 9, rebels, liars, unwilling to hear the instruction of the seers and the prophets, those who declare the words. Rather, look what they say. Speak to us with smooth things. Prophesy illusions. All right? Just what Paul warned Timothy, remember, in the New Testament. He says that there's a time when they will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. They, they want what they want. Turn from their own passion. For their own passion. Turning away from God. Wandering into myths. That's what Paul told Timothy. Famous author Flannery O'Connor said. She said. The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. <laughs> the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. And now because Judah, verse 12, rejects, despise the word, trust and rely on their idols, their false trust in Egypt. Look what it said. They'll fall into pieces, little pieces, like a breached wall, maybe with a crack or a bulge in a wall that will suddenly fall down or a piece of pottery that is smashed into small little pieces, useless pieces. In those days when, when pottery would crash, they would take pieces of it and they would scoop up coals, hot coals to move them. Or they would scoop up uh, with these broken pieces, uh, 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 they would scoop up water to drink from. But now, pottery smashed, symbol of Judah. There'll be nothing useful. But once again, even now, look at verse 15 with me. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of, of, of sin and rebellion, God offers hope. If you're here this morning, I want you to hear that. God offers hope to those who will turn. Verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Returning, turn from your self-reliance back to God. It's a call to, for people everywhere, including Jerusalem, to repent, to, 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 to turn from their mistrust to trust, from their faithlessness to faithfulness, to be quiet and to rest 
If you remember back in chapter 7, God told Ahaz, who was making an alliance with Assyria, don't do that, rest, be quiet. Trust God's provision. Fearing an enemy. Fearing an enemy is the opposite of being faithful and calm. We can rest when we put our confidence, our trust in God. He is the only source of our victory. He's the only one trustworthy. Look what it says here. Only the Lord God, that means the sovereign one. Only the Holy One of Israel, that means he is utterly holy and distinct, separate from all evil. He alone can give them rest. Verse 15. But sadly, look at the last uh, few uh, words in there. In verse 15. In quiet and trust be your strength, but you were unwilling. Hmm. Are you unwilling this morning? Are you holding on to your plans and your purposes, your own passions? Are you unwilling or are you willing? God, in, in verses 16 and 17, even though God offers himself, these folks chose horses, a symbol of, of military strength. Uh, they chose a multitude of helpers as if anything could stop them from the day God will visit and the day of God's discipline. Are you fearful this morning? Have you run things and run to things that you think will give you what you're looking for but are not helpful at all? Are, are, are you making alliances with things in order to find, find a satisfaction apart from God? Turn to him, he says, and find rest. Don't be unwilling, but be willing. God's grace would pour it out on you. What will be your response? It was Charles Spurgeon that said, The same sun which melts wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. What will it be for you this morning? Will you turn to the salvation of God? Verse 18 through 22. Therefore, the Lord God, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he'll answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols Overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images, you will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Look at the beauty and the graciousness of our God. We may be unwilling, verse 15, but God waits to be gracious and merciful to us. He exercises continual patience toward us. He promises never to forsake us. The Lord is waiting to show his grace. Lord, why are you waiting? The Lord is waiting until we are in that position 
to receive it. The psalmist cries out in the psalm, How long, O Lord? And I think God would say here to the people of Jerusalem, When you're ready, (laughs) when you stop fleeing, when you stop running, when you stop trusting in idols. You see, when we are running after our own passions and we're running after our own sinful ways, we continue... Our frame of mind is not one of salvation and deliverance, mercy and blessings and grace. They are in no real spiritual condition to understand the compassion of God. So my question for us this morning, is your mind open to the work of the Holy Spirit? Is your mind open to the Holy Spirit's work of revealing the beauty And glory, salvation, deliverance of Christ. He's just going through the motions like the people of Judah. God is here waiting. Not only graciously, but look what he's doing. He's waiting to magnify his own name. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. When God pours out his mercy on people, it is the way he exalts himself and glorifies himself. His glory, his his infinite value is manifested when he's pouring out his grace and mercy on sinners who don't deserve it. But I think it's important to note the difference between God waiting and the remnant who will actually wait. Look at this, those who dwell in Zion, who will weep no more. Blessed are those who wait for him. What's the difference? Well, Well, God's justice is the difference. There is hope for the remnant because God doesn't simply just destroy his people, but he'll discipline them, those who trust in idols. But eventually he'll come to show that those who wait for the mercy of God, because he's a just God, will wait and see their salvation. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. But God desires not only to bless his people, but God must act in justice. So they wait. God must act in righteousness. God must, must deal with sin. Punish sin. Justice is not unrelated to the work of salvation at all. And those who wait for him will be blessed. Not those who are unwilling, but those who are waiting on God's pouring out of his justice and judgment. Who wait patiently for his mercy, for his grace, will see the manifestation of his mercy. We must wait because judge and punishment God must do, but he will not forsake his ultimate goal to act. Look at verse 19. God hears the prayers and the crying of his people as he did when they were in bondage in Egypt. He heard their cry and he'll hear their call for help and he will, he will answer them. When people finally see the hopelessness of trusting in their own efforts and they finally look to to God for their solution, for their problems, he answers them. I'm going to say this carefully. Sometimes, let the Holy Spirit work in your life. Sometimes we cry out to God, where are you? Have mercy on me. Have grace upon me. Pour Pour out your mercy on me. But I'm not giving up my plans. I want to do what I want to do. I want my way. 
have mercy on me, O Lord. And the Lord's like, oh, I, I want to. But you're stubborn. You won't listen. Rather than just saying, not my will, but yours be done. And sometimes, sometimes it happens during difficult times. Look at verse 20 and 21. The bread of adversity and the water of affliction. It's there sometimes that the teacher shows up. Look at it says, the teacher hides himself no more. They will finally see and hear him. They will accept his love and his grace in his word, for they will walk in it. See that in verse 20 and 21? 22? They'll walk in it. We learn from the book of Hebrews that even in the Old Testament, God promised that in the new covenant, he will pour out his Holy Spirit upon you. The Spirit of God will dwell within you. He will write his laws on the minds and the hearts of his people and compel us to walk in that way. Ezekiel 36. Worrying and, and, and agonizing are not going to help. It's not going to fix the situation. You see, the human ability to solve problems only get us into more trouble. But humble people who, who trust in the Lord, hear from him, his word, walk in his, way, walk in his ways, will one day experience the grace and mercy of God. Sometimes it happens in adversity, difficulty. God never promised us to follow him, to repent of sin, to walk with Jesus, that all of a sudden our life will be without trouble, no matter how much the multi-billion dollar jet-flying lunatics on TV tell you. Verse 22 is a result of God's teaching that is seen and heard. The people will see the foolishness of trusting their idols and total rejection. Look with me at verse 22. Then, I love this verse. I'm getting nowhere with these things. Okay. Then you will defile your carved idols, that in which you're clinging to, overlaid with silver, maybe in your driveway, I don't know. Your gold medal images, maybe it's your kids or whatever. You will scatter them as unclean. You will say to them, be gone. In other words, taking good things, making them ultimate things, come to the place where you say, no, be gone. I want to worship the Lord only. All those things, are many things are good things. But when they come to the ultimate thing, they become the, an idol thing, right? He wants to be gracious. He wants to be merciful when he hears your cry. But we realize, we must realize that even in affliction, God's greatest gift to us is himself. And the presence of God breaks through in the gospel and Jesus ushers us into the throne room of God. His word becomes our word. We finally see how stupid and costly, painstakingly and difficult and really just costly how idols were. Then we hear the mercy and grace of God. Now listen, family. When Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Scripture alone, destroy all the things we placed our hope in, we will know His mercy. We'll be rescued to safety. We, we will rest and not be worried. We will find strength and not be faint. We will have hope and we will not be dismayed. And we will not be naked in shame, for by His grace, He Himself will cover our sin. And all of this is a beautiful reality of the gospel, 
but it is also a foretaste of what is to come. Look at verse 23 through 26. The old, uh, Isaiah is using Old Testament language to describe the renewal that God will have on the earth, the ultimate grace flowing of a second coming. Look at verse 23. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous in That day your livestock will gaze at large pastures and the oxen and donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which has been winnowed and shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain, on every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in that day of the great slaughter when the towers fall moreover. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Family, listen, ultimately, in the end, not only God's people enjoy salvation, but the whole earth will. Romans 8, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, will set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All curses, all brokenness that's due to sin will be eradicated and it will not happen according to their idols. Their idols are not going to do this. God's going to do this. God's going to do this. In fact, the idols in that day that they would worship, many of them had to do with agriculture and, 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 and the, the sun, the moon, the, the, the rain and the harvest. But God will give rain. God will give rain for the seed. God will give rain for the seed. And then to make bread, it'll be rich and plenteous. Plenteous. Even the livestock will eat well. And the point is, the point is rather simple for us and for the Israelites and for the Judah. Stop your dependence on the idols. Stop trusting in the strategy of your own plans. And you will experience what, we, what, what you're trying to get from idols. You will experience it in reality, in truth, in the fullness, in the mercy and grace and salvation of God. Now, notice in verse 25, he returns to the theme of water. Not an affliction, though. This time, not an affliction, but abundance of flowing. Even the bread, which produce adversity, will be rich and plenteous. At that time, God blesses his people, destroys his enemy. And the picture that God has, uh, the ideal picture Isaiah is, is portraying to his audience is that God's not done. God's going to restore. God's going to renew. God's going to forgive and gather his remnant people. Isaiah is not only looking at Judah and the remnant of Judah that will be delivered from the invasion, but what Isaiah is pointing to is that which will come in the end. Again, as I said before, I believe that this is speaking of the future messianic kingdom where Christ will reign and rule for a thousand years on the earth. Some people see this just as an analogy of the gospel. Some people see this as the final consummation of the ages where, you know, the healed world will be completely healed. The rain will fall. The rivers will stream. Sunlight and moonlight will be brighter. Although Revelation 21 says in a new heaven, new earth, there'll be uh, no need for a sun or a moon. But that's what you believe. Okay. God will usher in. God will renew and redeem. That's the point. God's promise He will restore and renew the earth. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is our God. This is his promises. Now, as we turn to number three, 
right? Strategies of idolaters, the salvation of God. As we turn to number three, we're going to hit it briefly, and we're going to move to the Lord's Supper, the communion table, okay? Again, the context is the suffering and destruction of Assyria. Look with me in verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord, behold, the name of the Lord, the fullness of God who revealed himself to us. The name of the Lord comes from afar. You ever see those clouds that come in thick clouds? You see it just coming across the horizon? Here's the coming of our God. Get ready to burst out with, with, with water and lightning over you. Burning with his anger. Notice that. Comes from afar, burning with his anger. And in thick rising smoke, clouds of smoke. His lips are full of fury. And his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. Pastor Lou, we're going to the communion table? Yeah. (laughs) And we're talking about wrath. We're talking about God's wrath, his flood, his uproar up to the neck deep that that threatens to, to put everyone to death. And God's wrath here is being poured out not only on the Assyrians. Notice what it says in verse 28. He will sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and place on the jaws of the people a bridle that leads astray. And we see this, this, this powerful language that Isaiah is portraying for us, what they call a, a anthropomorphic. In other words, it is, it is, it is ascribing human characteristics and actions to God. His anger, his lips, his tongue, a fire, a rushing stream, and, and family, This is the word of God. I'm just a mailman, right? God is speaking. God is showing. Isaiah is revealing this terrifying picture of God's presence coming from afar and his judgment. The sieve separates the tongue with the bridle controls and and the sovereign God now is going to separate his remnant from those who are headed for destruction. The time has come. To sift the nations, the punishment will fall. Verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice, the splendor, majesty, and action, the awe-inspiring voice of the king to be heard. And the descending blow of his arm to be seen. In furious anger, a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm of hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken. At the voice of the Lord, when he strikes with his rod, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them, look, will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres, battling with brandished arm. We will fight with them. Verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared indeed. For the king it is made ready, its pyre which is a pile of wood, made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Ah, The imagery that Isaiah is portraying makes it clear of the presence and the work of God, the arm, the power, and the wrath at work. Now we know from 2 Kings and Isaiah 37 that when the army of Assyria approached Judah, 185,000 troops... God destroyed and killed. And the chapter ends with this punishment. that God's burning the plunder. God is pictured as a warrior defeating his enemies. 
And I have to, I, I, if you've never heard that God is angry or God has a wrath, let me just tell you something really quickly and we're, we're almost done. God's anger and God's wrath is not like yours or mine your parents, or anyone you know. God's anger and wrath is not unpredictable, hot-tempered, irrational, and explosive. God's wrath is a settled, uncontaminated, pure, unchanging, anger and displeasure opposing sin. It is always righteous. It is always just. It is always a response to his, listen, holiness. The holiness of God repels sin and wickedness. That's the wrath of God. And Assyria had come to do this mission to destroy, and God says, nope, there's a mission of self-destruction. Listen. Notice here that they're singing and tambourines, they'll be rejoicing. The sound of tambourines and lyres. You see that? Even in wrath, God is glorifying himself. A God who, listen, a God who tolerates evil is not glorious. A God who tolerates evil is not glorious. A God who does not judge and punish sin is not righteous. A God who sweeps rebellion under the rug is not worthy of worship. Judgment, tambourine singing for God's people. Now, I skipped the verse. If you caught that, verse 29. You shall have a song. The remnant, God's people, you'll have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart. There's inner genuine worship of God. As when one sets out to the sound of the flute, there's music, they're singing, going to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. A song. The first word in that sentence, it's emphatic. It sets the pace for everything. As the psalmist teaches us, there is singing, there is celebration during the festivals of God's people. The religious life, they sang and they worshiped and there was joy. And the high point of this festival that he's talking about is at night. Look what it says. The night is when the festival was sanctified, celebrated, and kept. What night is that? It's the night of the Passover. Exodus 12 it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It was a night of the Passover. There was celebration and singing at night. Look at, look at the text. There's clouds and there's fire. This is all about the Exodus. The Lord is a rock. It was the Exodus, the evening that God delivered his people from Egypt. That evening when the lamb was slain, blood was spilled, and the lamb was eaten. We learn from the New Testament that there was song and singing over the Passover. This table here with the bread and the cup should remind us of God's wrath and God's salvation. Just as God's wrath was poured out on the night of the first Passover, on the night in which they spilt the blood of the lamb, put the blood over the doorstep, and the angel of death came and killed all the firstborn child. Justice came down. God visited the people and only those who took shelter under the blood substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb lived. And this table reminds us of that substitute. Because on the cross when Jesus died, land was filled with darkness, came over the land. Judgment and wrath was poured out on Jesus and he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? His body was broken. His blood was shed. 
Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserve, bearing the penalty for our sins, rising from the dead, offering forgiveness and his righteousness to you by faith. This communion table should remind us that you and I were once idolaters. The table should remind us that we should regularly and consistently repent and tear down the idols that want to crawl back up on the throne of our hearts. The Assyrian nation is done. No longer a threat. Nations have arisen. Nations will arise. Nations will oppose God's people. And the end will be their destruction. Family, hear me. Just as those who reject Christ resist the salvation of God in the gospel will go to their final eternal destination. Eternal separation from God. A place where he prepared called hell, which Jesus calls a fiery furnace, a place where weeping and gnashing of teeth. The ultimate, we, listen, the ultimate threat we face, human beings face, is not the Assyrian nation. It is actually the wrath of God upon us. The wrath of God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Here's the joy. Here's the singing. Here is when the people rejoice in the goodness of God. That we delight and we are grateful. Is that Jesus took the wrath of God and satisfied his righteous judgment in our place as our substitute. That's what this table is about. Now as the band comes up, let me say this as we prepare. The destruction of God's people the destruction of of God's enemies, I should say, the making of all the wrongs, making them right, the vanquishing of all evil brings glory to God and joy to God's people. God's righteous justice against sin and evil has been satisfied on the cross. The wrath poured out, justice has been served, justice has been satisfied, Jesus is our substitute. The table represents his body that was broken, his blood that was shed on the cross where he took all that we deserve upon himself. And God says to you this morning, in love and in grace and in mercy and in kindness and a desire to see you come to him. Throw off your own plans. Throw off your own self-salvation. Throw off your idols. Throw off your self-justification and come to him. With only your sin and say, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. You provided the way. I'm not going to cling to idols. I'm not going to cling to things that are worthless and empty. I'm not going to cling to things that give me nothing but heartache, headache, and emptiness. I'm clinging to you. Jesus Christ, the God-man who stepped into history and lived the perfect life you could never live. He died the death you should have died. And he died in your place. And died and took the wrath you deserve. And bore the punishment for your sins and then was buried. And three days later rose from the dead. Verifying sacrifice completed. Sacrifice accepted. Come to him. Will you come to him this morning? And maybe you know him this morning. But there are idols struggling and strangling your heart. Now's the time to repent. And just give them over to the Lord. And tear down those idols through the power of his spirit and the beauty of the gospel. So if you're a child of God or you want to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, you're welcome to this table. The table is for the children of God, the followers of Christ.
If you're a follower of Christ, the band's going to play. We're going to sing one song. During that one song, you'll come down the end aisles, the very last aisles. Come down and grab your communion and then go back and wait. Hold on to the elements. Hold on to the bread. Hold on to the cup. And then I'll come up between songs and we'll lead uh, you in the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Come to Christ. If you've come to Christ, worship Christ. Have some time repenting, confessing your sins quietly as a song is being played, as you have the elements in your hand, and then we're going to celebrate and sing. Because, as we like to sing, our, our sin may be a lot, but his mercy is more. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. Father, help us today. For those who don't know you that are here in this room, Lord, we pray that your heart, their hearts would be open. That your spirit would do a work. Your, your spirit would call them to repentance and faith. That you, they would see the beauty and the glory of Christ and turn from their sin and trust you alone. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, have been struggling and battling and, and, and having difficulties with idols and things in our lives that, that shouldn't be there as, as the, the number one thing that we run to, Lord, we pray that they would be replaced by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So as we Spend time in prayer as we confess and repent of sin. Lord, be with us too as we celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, may you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.